Intelligent Threads, the most advanced wearable technology on the market. This revolutionary product releases engaged muscles holding your body out of structural balance. The results are legendary, improving posture, sleep, and relaxation while decreasing pain. Go to IntelligentThreads.com today for more info. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Blaine Hitsfield. Uh, he's the CEO of distribution of Seven Sons Farms. Their website is sevensons.net. So we're going to talk about their work and their farm and what's unique about them. Blaine, thanks for coming. Hey, excited to get on and chat. If you would, tell me about the history of, of Seven Sons. How did it come to be? And are you one of the sons? So which one are you? Yes, I am one of the seven sons. I'm uh, number two in line. So as you mentioned there, I handle all things marketing, distribution, and, and business development here at the farm. Love what I do. I've My wife and I have been married for 16 years, have six children. We homeschool uh, the kids and uh, raise them here on the, the family farm. So but yeah, I can give you a little bit of background about about our farm. So my this is started by my parents uh, in the late 80s. When they first got married, my my dad bought, purchased his first initial 20 acres from an existing farmer. So kind of moved into the, the business that that farmer had going on at that time. And at that time, it was strictly a conventional farming operation. The working farm that he purchased had a farrow to finish hog operation on it. So very conventional, you know, known as a CAFO today. I don't think they called them CAFOs back in the 80s, as far as I know, but that's what it was. My dad also had about a thousand acres of uh, row crop corn and soybeans that they farmed. A thousand acres? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And that that was not a land that he owned. He leased it. These were lease contracts that came from the farmer that he purchased the 20 acres from initially, kind of that main farmstead. But that's, uh, that's when it started, strictly conventional. My dad will tell you. I mean, he started off farming exactly how, you know, Purdue Ag School would have taught him to farm. Uh, He didn't know anything different, but my parents kind of got a rude awakening in the late 90s, which I'm I'm happy to share kind of the transition of what uh, got us thinking uh, different than conventional agriculture. But well, one one quick thing, Um, you mentioned a CAFO, that's what a concentrated area feeding. Concentrated animal feeding uh, system. So okay. So for yeah. listeners, they they picture like a whole bunch of chickens stuffed in shoulder to shoulder, or cows stuffed in, or, yes. or what do they picture? A cattle a cattle feedlot, or yeah, a large barn. You know, all the CAFO chicken barns have a minimum of twenty to one hundred thousand birds in a single barn. Mm-hmm. But they, most of them, you know, most of those barns still don't have any outdoor access. Most eggs, you know, when you talk about chickens in a CAFO, most of the the eggs that are produced are still from caged hens that are, you know, in cages, not not even access to a barn floor. So in in our case, we were raising hogs. So we we would have, you know, mama pigs, you know, that would get stuffed into a crate where they can't turn around. All they can do is stand up and sit down. And that's where they had their, you know, their litters. And then, you know, the offspring of those, you know, those mama pigs would would then get raised in 
concrete floor barns with manure pits below them. You know, it, it was a deal where, you know, if you lost power to these buildings, these CAFO buildings, if you lost power and you you lost the ability to recirc- recirculate the air for more than 30 minutes, you, you would have animals suffocating. That's how, you know, that's how toxic and unideal the environment and unforgiving the environment is in a CAFO system for hogs, for example. So, oh, man. yeah. Uh, good question. What did, what did your parents, you know, I don't know if you've ever asked them, but how did they feel about what they were doing back then versus what they're doing now? Well, I mean, back then they didn't know any different. You know, they felt, you know, they felt really proud of what they were doing, honestly. And that's kind of, you know, that's kind of the mindset in general in agriculture, especially, you know, industrial agriculture. It's, you know, it's very difficult to think a different way. You know, matter of fact, you know, my dad would probably tell you that he would have been pretty offended if somebody, you know, ever told him, you know, he shouldn't be using chemicals, for example, in the row crops or that, you know, maybe a CAFO hog operation isn't the best thing for the welfare of a hog or and the best thing for the health of the consumer, you know, he probably really would have took offense to that. And that's just where, that's just where we were at that point. You know, it's kind of have to really change your beliefs to be open to uh, new ideas. And that's, that's definitely what happened for my parents. Okay. Well, what, what happened then? How did the, uh, the transition begin? Was there an event or is it slowly over time? Yeah, the, the transition ultimately was slower over time, but the thinking changed pretty quickly actually when my mom was actually diagnosed with a very severe autoimmune condition, arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis. It was very severe. The doctors told her that at the rate in which the autoimmune disease was progressing, she could end up in a wheelchair. At that time, there was only three of us brothers, and doctors told her she wouldn't be able to have any more kids. And that, yeah, that within five years, she could end up being in a wheelchair because at this point it was hard for her to even get out of bed to use, to, to go to the bathroom. She, we would carry, my dad would carry her to the bathroom. That was so, that was how bad wow. the condition was. So it was, <laughs> that's something that kind of rocks your world and makes you just, you know, rethink everything. And so what, what had happened, what had happened is we met, my dad met a soil agronomist. His name, his name is Ray Smith. He's from Indiana. And just in passing, my dad was mentioning my, my, my mom's health struggles. And Ray Smith was a very, very holistically minded soil agronomist. He knew so much about soil health, plant health, human health, was really the first person my dad had ever met that really had such a holistic understanding of, of how agriculture, food production also affects you know, the health of, of people. And uh, th- this guy was very smart. He he actually studied under one of Albert Einstein's assistants, so it had a lot of generational knowledge um, and genius passed down to him. But long story short, he was able to offer my mom nutrition and advice, nutrition advice, and she was she had a dramatic turnaround in her health just by following some very simple nutritional protocols that the soil agronomist suggested. And it had to do with balancing her pH for one thing uh, was a was a real a turnaround for her and, um, and really adjusting her diet and some, some lifestyle changes. And they were so, my parents were so amazed at, uh, the turnaround that her health took that they, you know, they really began to listen to soil agronomist and his, his principles that he taught is that all life begins in the soil and it translates all the way to human life and human health. And you know, the basis of industrial agriculture is, you know, it's it, it's propped up on using synthetic chemicals that create a, a chemical reaction in the soil to produce calories, but ultimately it's empty calories because 
the real way to produce food is you want a biological reaction happening in the soil, a biological system that's making nutrients available to plants through the soil and through the natural, you know, natural mineral cycles, natural systems that are taking place in the soil. You need that life in the soil to truly release nutrients um, to plants and that animals consume and that ultimately, you know, if we're consuming those plants or consuming animals. My parents really became convinced that, hey, as farmers, we have a big role to play in the health of society. And we can't ignore this any longer. We saw the difference that health and nutrition made for my uh, for my mom. And so that's when they they were really sold out on a vision and a mission to ultimately one thing, improve the health of our soil and raise healthier food for our own family and for friends and neighbors. And we really didn't really didn't have a vision for growing a brand. Uh, actually, we didn't. We didn't have there was no vision for growing a brand or a food company. It was just to farm better and to offer products to friends and neighbors. Intelligent Threads produces results within seconds of wear, tested over the past seven years for maximum effectiveness and quality of life improvements. Think about an 80% better REM and deep sleep per night. This revolutionary technology is the game changer everyone needs. Go to intelligentthreads.com today. Okay. So your parents started understanding and improving their own health and then what about the farm? When did that thinking change alongside of the their own personal health thinking? Yeah, so it, it was, you know, there was about a year or two where they were just, you know, studying and learning. But by 1996 is when my parents decided to sell all of the confinement hogs that were on the farm, which was the main source of cash flow. It was the main business, that confinement hog business. We were producing for Tyson Foods at the time. And that was a really, really big decision. It's a tough decision. There's a reason that CAFO operations and, and industrial farming operations don't make quick transitions because so much of the infrastructure involved with, with raising animals in a CAFO system, infrastructure that's very expensive, it's 20 to 30 year long-term investments, paybacks, and you can't you can't liquidate it. You can't repurpose it. You know, you're talking about automated feeding systems, automated watering systems, you know, automated manure systems. You know, so it's it's really tough to make a transition. But they decided to do that. Basically, close the doors to that infrastructure, and it sat sat empty. And we we experienced some pretty tough economical times for about the next ten years as we transitioned to. Uh, to, to regenerative practices. So ultimately, when we sold the hogs, we started converting our corn and soybean monocrop land uh, into perennial pastures. So going back to a pasture-based system, we started reinvesting and building fence fencing systems for pasturing our animals, and we reinvested in actually getting cattle on the farm. You know, all this while our cash flow from the conventional business had been shut off. So ultimately, economically, we we went backwards for a time there. So it was a real struggle, but by by two thousand um, by two thousand we actually started the Seven Sons business and brand at that time. Well, quick question. So um, I don't know much about pastures. I know that you know it's places where cattle will hang out and cattle will hang out and eat the grass, et cetera. Um, instead of keeping them concentrated, what do you have to do in order to have them roaming? Do they have to alternate between you know five or six different pastures, like one day a week, or yeah? You know, what was the method that you had to use? Yeah. I mean, back then you just kind of called it rotational grazing. You know, now we 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 call it more adaptive grazing, but it's it's the same principle. 
is it's the principle that animals should never stay in a single place, you know, more than a couple days. Um, and that, and that's just a, that's an ecological principles, a principle that when you look at nature, animals never stay in a single place. You know, they're never confined to a, to an area for, for more than a couple days. So, you know, just mimicking nature's patterns of grazing animals. If you look at the, you know, the bison that would have grazed the prairies hundreds of years ago, you know, they're always, you know, grazing the land and then moving on to the next spot so that the, the land they just grazed can rest and recover for the animals to come back, you know, maybe 90 days later. In our case, we have about a 60 to 90 day rotation for all of our pastures. So all of our cattle are moved either every day or every two days to a fresh pasture spot. So we're using a lot of electric, portable electric fencing. We'll, every year, Rich, we actually build about 100 miles on our 500 acre farm of portable electric fencing. We're building it, taking it down. It's not a big setup. They're just single strand little paddock fences, but it's electrified and it's enough to keep the animals in a, in a little space and we, we move them on. And the idea, the idea is that the animals are, you know, kind of pruning the, the landscape. And when the, gra- when the animals move off of a freshly grazed spot, those plants get a chance to recover and rebuild their root systems. Because when animals come along and graze a plant, what happens is however, whatever amount of the plant that the animal grazes on the top of the soil, you get about the same amount in what's called a root slough, where those roots will die off and, and feed the soil micro, uh, the, soil, the soil biology uh, in the soil. So that's what you want to happen. You want to be feeding that soil biology through grazing the plants to release some of those, the root energy and then give the plant time to recover its roots and grow new roots. And so it's a, it's a cycle of basically sequestering carbon back into the soil and feeding all the soil life so that the soil is actually improving over time. And it's, it's done through just the intentional rotational grazing uh, of livestock, you know, ruminant animals. So, and on, and we have, you know, today we have about 200 uh, head of cattle that graze our farm each year. Uh, we've got close to a thousand uh, lambs uh, on our farm, and then we have about fourteen thousand laying hens for eggs that also uh, rotate throughout the pastures during the the growing season. So it's uh, oh wow, pretty neat uh, sight to see. So what were some of the the um, I don't know the the ticks that sorry the the tips or tricks or difficulties you had with the different animals? Like, is there any that come to mind? One that was particularly difficult, and why? And migrating well, them to this new system. Well, the tricky part was with the cattle. Um, the cattle genetics was tricky to find the right genetics that would finish well on grass. I mean, most of the cattle genetics that are bred in the U.S. Um, are bred to perform well in a feedlot scenario. And the big difference is cattle genetics have been bred to basically did not have much of a rumen, much of a stomach. And that's the tool on a, on a grazing animal that, you know, is able to hold a biomass grazed grass and they, you know, that four chambered ruminant stomach converts that pasture, that roughage, you know, into meat. And if you don't have much of a rumen capacity on the animal, they just can't, they can't convert that forage well. And, and ultimately an animal in a feedlot doesn't need much of a stomach. They're just you know, they're just uh, standing in front of a, a feeder eating, you know, high starch, high energy grain all day. Uh, ultimately, the the breeders have, have bred out those components like a large stomach, a wide girth, 
uh, all those comp- all those characteristics of an a- of a traditional beef animal have been bred out of of these animals. And so it took us a while to rebuild our genetics and to find breeders that were breeding animals that would perform well on grass. Um, because if you don't have the right genetics, uh, you end up uh, producing a subpar, poor quality beef product, which a lot of people that was that maybe tried eating grass fed beef, you know, 10, 20 years ago, they experienced a poor quality eating experience. It's it's not very marbled. It can be tough and leathery. And that's just because of the poor genetics. So that, that was a real learning curve uh, for us was getting the right genetics. The next the next learning curve was really just well, quick, quick question about that. Yeah. So they were, was there no appreciable cattle that were kept, you know, unbred and unmodified from many years before? Were they all transitioned over where there was so many transition over that you just couldn't find economically the ones you needed? Yeah, it was difficult. Luckily, there was still some heritage breeds, you know, that were out there that certain breeders were beginning to, uh, you know, were trying to make available to grass finishers like us. Um, and we, and so we did end up finding some. We today we use um, a lot of uh, Murray Gray genetics. That's a old English breed that really hasn't been uh, tampered with. There's there's two strains of Murray Gray. One strain has been tampered with quite a bit, and then there's a, a heritage strain or line that hasn't been. And so we we focused on some Murray Gray genetics. We also have found there are some Angus breeds uh, lines that have been preserved. So typically we stick to what's considered old English breeds, um, heritage breeds that, that have done a lot better on grass. And it's typically when you look at the animal, it's a smaller animal. They're closer to the ground. They're wider. They're thicker. Uh, where a feedlot animal is what they call pencil gutted. It's, it's long. It's narrow. Uh, tall legs. You know, that's what most of the genetics here in the U.S. is for cattle. And they're just not efficient on grass at all. Well, if someone were to look at a picture of two different cows side by side, you know, the grazers versus the feedlot ones, like how dramatic is the difference visually? I mean, you're you're going to see, the biggest thing you're going to see is the distance between the bottom of the stomach and the ground. A feedlot animal is just going to stand so much taller if you're looking at the side of the animal. You're also going to see on a feedlot animal, you know, the difference in like just looking at the legs of the animal. These are some of the characteristics we look at. You want a fine, a finer boned animal. So when you're looking at the side, look at the legs. It needs to be a finer bone. It's kind of a smaller leg, shorter to the ground. And then when you're looking face on at the animals, you definitely want to, you want a, a thicker animal. So, and, and a much wider gut. So like where the stomach begins to come out, like you're looking down the long end of an animal, you want to see a protruding stomach on each side. That means there's room and capacity. There's capacity to go forage and graze and convert that into energy. And you want to see a wide muzzle. So like on, on a feedlot animal, they haven't been bred to have a wide mouth or a wide muzzle. But that's, you know, that's the harvesting machine that these animals have when they're out there grazing. They need to have a wide muzzle. So those are just characteristics we look for in, in uh, the right genetics. Another one is disposition. Uh, you need to have a gentle, calmer animal. A high-strung, stressed-out animal is never going to do well on grass in, in a grazing system. Okay. And then what were some of the difficulties you had, let's say, with the hogs or you know, what was the next most difficult and why? Yeah, I would say next. Next was kind of the the, the laying hens, uh, figuring out how to raise hens outdoor in a rotational system uh, was difficult. I mean, one of the challenges was just predation, uh, you know, dealing with ground predation or aerial predators, uh, you know, eagles, hawks. You know, it, it, 
you know, you could come out one morning and, you know, notice there's 30 or 40, you know, hens that are, that are gone. Predators got to move overnight. We have coyotes and raccoons and minks in our area. And so that was, predation was, was pretty difficult. Today, we, we've got it a lot more refined. So we have electric netting that we actually put around each one of our flocks of hens. So we have we have hens in flocks of about anywhere from 3,000 to 6,000 hens in a single flock. So we'll surround those flocks with wow. electric netting. And that electric netting has to be moved every day. But that keeps the ground predation predators you know, at bay. And then we also have Great Pyrenees guard dogs that will patrol the areas that are fenced in. Um, and that, that really helps as well. Um, and, and that seems to really help with aerial predation because when we have the, the hens in a fenced in netted area, their, you know, their flock density, you know, they're, they're, to, they're close enough together that it tends to intimidate aerial predators from wanting to swoop in. An aerial, an aerial predator wants to swoop in and grab a, a hen that's, you know, far, that's ventured far off from the main group, uh, where you just don't have that if you're surrounding the birds with netting. But the, the hard part of that is you have to move the netting every day. Uh, but when we're combining three to 6,000 hens in a single flock, you know, it may, it may take a half hour to move the netting each day, but that's not bad when you're considering you're moving three to 6,000 uh, laying hens. So I don't have any um, hens get along. I mean, how many, are there any roosters amidst them? No, you know, does, does a rooster care no, for X number of hens? Nope. We don't need roosters because we're not, uh, we're not harvesting any fertilized eggs. We're not doing any, any of our own hatching. So no roosters in, in our case needed. Um, but the hens do well together. Um, the smaller the flock, the better. That's why we'll run a lot of 3,000 bird flocks instead of 6,000 bird flocks. Just the community dynamics, the competition, the pecking order uh, is reduced, smaller flocks. But w- one key is that we always keep the same age hens in the same flock. That really reduces the pecking order and really reduces stress and, and some of the, the stressful community dynamics you would get if you had uh, multiple ages in a single group. So, oh, the older hens dominate, and then they what they do they starve out the younger hens, or what happens? Yeah, yeah, they just they establish a pecking order, and it's very hard to notice if you're just you know walking out among the hens. But they have their own pecking order. They'll guard the feeders. They'll guard the you know the watering spots. You know they'll guard the the best roosting spots, and and they'll peck on each other. I mean, it's literally a pecking order where a certain hen gets too close, and they're lower on the pecking order. They'll get pecked. I don't think science quite understands the dynamics of that animal behavior and, and, you know, what that pecking order is all about, but we just know smaller, you know, smaller uh, flock sizes uh, does help in keeping the same age hens together. So another challenge, Rich, with the lane hens is that your main economical factor of whether or not a hen business is profitable on a farm is the lay rate. So how many eggs can you get from a hen each year? So the, the industrial CAFO barns will get easily uh, 90% lay rates throughout the year. So that means out of the full year, one hen will, you know, will lay an egg 90% of those days. So in pasture-based models, when I talk to other farms, and, and this was a struggle for us, a lot of other farms struggle and hover around the 50 to 60% lay rate. And, and that just makes it really, really hard to be economical. And, and there's just greater factors of, of uh, out in the pasture, it's less of a controlled environment. Your lighting fluctuates. 
The environment is fluctuating as you move the birds. They're not in a controlled, heated, or cooled environment. So whatever the summer temperatures are doing, whatever the winter temperatures are doing, the hens are experiencing those climatic changes. And it's just more difficult to keep the hens, you know, laying laying eggs well. So we we've really refined our model and we have very, very intentional hoop buildings uh, that each of the hens have access to every day to go in to lay their eggs to get feed and water. We have we're very intentional about our, we actually have a solar lighting system in all of our chicken hoop buildings uh, that the chickens go into at night. So we have controlled lighting systems for them out there on pasture. And so we're able to keep our lay rates up to 75 to 85% throughout the year. And that's that difference of say 80% versus 60%. That's most of your profit in a laying hen business. So that was a challenge to figure out how to get that lay oh, rate. Wow up so what did the farm look like let's say in the beginning and what does it look like today like what are some of the major changes you made i know it's a broad question but um you know what do you know now that you've been doing this for x number of years you didn't know in the beginning well yeah i'm trying to think of some of the the bigger mistakes that that we made i know that when we first got started we were we actually had a lot of different animal classes on the farm you know, we, we were raising, we had, a, we had brood cows and we had a cow calf operation. So that means we had mama cows and bulls and we were raising the, the calves and taking them through the, the, the feeder phase is what, what it's called. It's kind of the young phase of a, of a cat, of a cow, taking them all the way through finish to where they're market ready or ready for harvest. So there's just a lot to manage when you're doing all your animal classes on, on your farm. When we did our pastured hogs, we had our own sows and boars, and we were raising our own litters. And same thing with with laying hens. We were getting our own our own baby chicks in as day old chicks, raising the chicks. And we also had meat birds on the farm. So we were raising meat birds. We were raising turkeys. Uh, we had goats at one time. And uh, so ultimately, if you would have visited us maybe ten years ago, you would have saw a lot going on, a lot of different livestock classes and species. And what we've done in the last, I would say, in the last five to six years, we've really focused on, okay, what can we do well as a farm? What is our our climate and our soil, our landscape? What is it best set up for? And so we've really gotten a little bit more focused. For example, we don't raise our own calves anymore on our farm. We, we buy calves from uh, several trusted producers that we, that we have connections with. And we just finish the animals on grass on our farm. And we've decided to do that because we're in an area where it is the land is very expensive. It's very fertile. The grasses that we grow here are very high energy and they're best for that finishing phase of a grass-fed animal. So that's what that's the phase we focus on. Same thing with the lane hens. We we don't raise our own chicks anymore. We we buy in what's called a started pullet at 16 weeks old. They're basically ready to lay eggs at that time. So we've we've had to get a little more focused because it's easy to get overwhelmed. Um, you know, we, we were very single-minded back as a conventional farm, you know, back eighties through the nineties, we didn't have hardly have any diversity. Well, when we, when we changed our uh, philosophies, you could say that we ended up overdoing it with way too many animal classes and and way too much to manage, uh, you know, nature, the systems below the soil and the ecosystem is complex, um, and complex systems can manage themselves. But when you start layering, you know, several different businesses and, and animal classes on your farm and you're trying to run profitable businesses, 
businesses are super complicated and there's always problems. There's always uh, things to manage about them. So we, we have had to reduce the, you know, the number of livestock classes. And, and that's something I see, you know, if there's any other farms listening to this that are, you know, that are diversifying and they're, you know, they're stacking their enterprises and their uh, livestock classes, you have to be careful not to overwhelm yourself. And before you know it, you're, you've got a lot of different things going on on the farm and you're not really doing any of them very well. No, that's true. That makes sense. What What do you guys feel like you're best at maybe in the, you know, I don't know about in the world, but uh, what do you feel like you're really, really good at in your farm? Well, we, you know, ultimately we, we consider ourselves a grass farm. And so we feel like what we've done the best at is uh, improving our soil. That's, that's ultimately our end goal. That's how we measure whether we're, we feel like we're progressing as a farm or we're, we're growing as a farm. Um, and we do that using different tools. You know, the, the tools that we like the best are finishing, you know, cattle on grass, using those animals as a, as a natural pruning mechanism for the landscape. We love having the laying hens on the farm. You know, just having the laying hens as a part of our livestock rotation, those hens apply about 4,000 pounds of organic chicken manure to every acre of every single year. You know, so it's such a benefit. And we, you know, we feel like we've really figured that out and, and have done that well. Something new on the farm this year is actually the thousand lambs. That's kind of new for us. So I wouldn't say we're the a best. Thousand at lambs? Yes. Jeez. Yes. I wouldn't say we're the best at that yet. We're learning uh, kind of on a steep learning curve with the. Is there, is there such a thing as a thousand, like a herd of lambs? I mean, that, that's a question I want to ask you. What, what animal behavior have you seen that you thought never existed that really surprised you? That's a good question. And I'm sure I just need a little time to think about it. Oh, no problem. Yeah. I was just curious because I yeah. imagine a herd of lambs. I've never heard of a herd of lambs. So that's well, why yeah, the question came to mind. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a flock. Actually, it's a flock of lambs. And but yeah, they, the lambs we just got in this year, they're not adapted to our environment or our, our land, our land and landscape yet. So what we're looking forward to is these, these lambs that we got in, the ewe lambs, they, they had uh, babies this year. And we think that the next, you know, next year's offspring will be so much more adapted to our environment. Um, you know, just talk about animal behavior, just adapting to an individual farm's environment is, is really critical, um, you know, to see animals do well. But, you know, the other thing that we really focus on, uh, Rich, is we, we really focus on building trusting relationships with consumers. I mean, we feel like we're actually really, we feel really called to do that. And, and that's just a big focus of what our operation is. It's it's reaching out to the community and being transparent uh, to our customers. And, you know, we understand that when customers buy from our farm and they buy the Seven Sons brand, you know, the reason they're buying from us is because they lost trust in where they're buying food before. And so we take that trust really serious. You know, it's, it's just kind of core to, to our belief systems and and uh, and who we are. I mean, we, we feel like that when we exchange when someone pays us for food and we exchange a dollar for the food products that we produce, you know, we feel like we're, we're directly responsible for that person's future health and well-being. And I think that's a belief that if every farmer took to heart, you, you would see an entirely different agriculture system. You would see, you know, an entirely different, you would see emptier hospitals, you know, just people wouldn't be as sick if, if farmers took on the, the heartfelt responsibility uh, knowing that they have so much impact over the health of a consumer and the health of a society. It's, it's uh, you know, we're the managers of the soil. 
And, um, you know, it doesn't matter. Do you, do, do you guys eat all the stuff that you produce or do you tend to say, you know, this is our business. I don't have time. I'll just eat whatever. Yeah, we know we eat, you know, everything we produce and we actually, um, it's important to us too, that even our staff, we have a staff of about 40 employees and part of their compensation packages is they get food credits in order to eat uh, food from our farm. So that, that's important to us. Uh, it's, it's, it's who we are. Okay. Um, how much of a health difference have you noticed, let's say, as, as you or your various family members have committed to eating, you know, mostly or entirely what you guys produce, if that's possible? Yeah. Well, I think my mom is just a, um, a great example of someone that was able to really turn her health around, um, you know, by being intentional about what she was eating. Um, I feel like that when I eat our food, it's so much more nutrient dense. I don't feel like I have to eat as much of it to get full. And it makes sense. I mean, this is, you know, this is, you know, food, animals that are raised on nutrient dense, rich soils. You know, it, it just makes sense that you're going to get a richer uh, food product with more minerals and nutrients, you know, in, in that food. So, you know, we feel very healthy. We feel very blessed to be able to eat from our own farm. It's, it's unique. And, um, you know, we'd love just giving the, our customers the opportunity to, to, you know, to partake in that, you know, that nutrient dense harvest that we have, you know, all throughout the year. Okay. So do you, do you, uh, run a CSA or where does all the, uh, the stuff you produce go to? Like where, I mean, what are your outlets? Yeah. Uh, So most of our, our food from our farm is sold online. So most customers are placing orders through our website. Roughly uh, 85% of of the food that leaves our farm is an e-commerce or an online order. So customers find us online and uh, we have about um, 10,000 active customers buy from us each year. And uh, and so we do everything through home delivery. So everything is uh, shipped out in a insulated and cooled box to customers' doorsteps. So uh, we'll make anywhere from thirty to forty thousand home deliveries every year, and that is uh, our main partner. On that is UPS. We actually use UPS to deliver the food to uh, customers' doors, and it's kind of the ultimate for convenience for our customers. You know, and what we sell is a, you know, is a is a niche product, and so the internet is a great place to connect with, you know, those niche consumers that appreciate what we do and, and value what we do. So we're we're primarily internet based. We also have a on farm store. So right here on the farm, you can visit. It's open six days a week, um, Monday through Saturday, um, and we always invite our customers. No matter where they're buying from us from, we always invite customers to come out to the farm and uh, visit the store. In the summer, we do wagon tours, pretty in depth wagon tours, where we take uh, groups of uh, of folks, you know, on a two hour trek uh, through the farm, and we we stop and we show them a soil health demonstration. So we teach them what healthy soil looks like. And uh, so it's a little bit of a on-farm workshop when we do those wagon tours. And then each, each year we also do what we call a farm festival and um, we'll get anywhere from 1500 to uh, 2,500 folks that come out to the farm on a single day. And uh, it's, it's more of a a fun party on the farm. We have uh, straw maze and food, live music, wagon tours, uh, but it's a real fun event every uh, every fall we we do that so well, very cool um what area do you serve <clears throat> you know where do people have to live in order to be uh, to get your products do you ship some of them nationwide or is it just locally yeah for for most of our business 
past, we've just been locally and, and regionally, uh, which is still where most of our uh, most of our customers are. But today, if you get on our website, we we'll, we can actually ship to uh, nationwide uh, at this point. So as our farm is, has grown, we've just been able to get set up better to ship our products further. But prior to three years ago, uh, you would have had to. We're in Fort Wayne, Indiana, nor- northern Indiana. For a while, we only delivered to the Indiana area, Chicago, you know, folks that were within a three to four hour radius of us. But but now you can get it uh, nationwide and all the orders are are uh, packed up here at the farm and we get them on a UPS truck uh, several days a week and everything's delivered that way now. Well, very good. Um, what's the best way for people to find out more about your products and your farm? Where can they go? Yep. Sevensons.net. That's where that's the hub of everything. You can learn about our practices there. Another great place to to search us would be on YouTube, uh, Seven Sons Farms on YouTube. We have, I think, over 100 YouTube videos and several million views. There's a lot of great content on there, videos that show our customers exactly how we raise animals. And it's uh, a great place to learn more about uh, how we do that. And of course, we're we're on most of the social media platforms as well, sharing just, you know, content about our farm. Excellent. Well, Blaine, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Yep. Thank you, Rich. Appreciate the opportunity. Intelligent Threads is like no other product on the market. True next-level biotechnology to help fix root cause issues associated with your body's structure. Try a patch, last for seven days, and see for yourself. IntelligentThreads.com. For one or more discussions on Intelligent Threads, please listen to the podcast called It's a Body Structure Thing on Spotify and YouTube. Visit IntelligentThreads.com today. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.